Well, amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Thank you uh, for being here this morning. We're really grateful for that. If you have a Bible, grab that and meet me over in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. If you're wondering, hey, I thought we are in the book of Daniel. We'll get back there next week. But I wanted to take a moment today and just share with you something that the Lord has been working on me about over the last couple of months through this passage and something I think that God will have for our church. Today, I just want to talk to you about what healthy church looks like by examining Acts chapter 6. You know, this is kind of wild to my kids, but sometimes I have to explain to them that back in the day, we had to watch what came on the TV. You know what I'm saying? Like, you couldn't just go to Netflix and have on-demand whatever you wanted, whenever. They're like, really? I was like, yeah, they had these things called commercials. They were terrible, and we had to sit through them. But my favorite day of the week was always Saturday. As a kid growing up on Saturday mornings, we'd wake up, and man, I loved watching Saturday morning cartoons. Anybody else, Looney Tunes as a kid growing up, you just, yeah, wasn't it awesome? Like just all day long, this wholesome, good cartoons. Uh, my favorite was the Flintstones. Uh, I, would, I would watch the Flintstones, and I loved, if, if, you were, if you know anything about the Flintstones, their theme song, now I'm not gifted as a musician like these guys, but the theme song Flintstones, meet the Flintstones, a modern Stone Age family. That's the, that's the most singing you're ever going to get from me. At the end of every episode, if you've watched it, what you notice is as the credits are rolling, uh, Fred, Fred would always put the family cat outside. Now, I know that's an oxymoron, so hang with me. Family and cat doesn't go together. We get that. But if you are going to have a cat, the cat belongs outside right? Amen? Like, there's no other place the cat belongs. Well, if you watch the show, every single time he puts the cat outside, what does the cat do? Because cats are evil. Cat runs back inside, locks the door, and locks Fred outside of the house. Anybody, you remember that? Every single time. Again, lesson number one, you can just go home. Don't buy a cat. But if you are, that's what happens. Have you ever been locked outside of the house? Um, when, when Allison and I first got married, uh, um, she went to work. It was a Friday, so I had the day off. And I'm on the couch. We didn't have kids, so back in those days, you could actually take naps. Well, I was taking a nap on the couch, and the doorbell rings. It's the UPS driver. Because we didn't have kids, we were dumb enough to get dogs, um, thinking there's no responsibilities there. So we had these two little, two little dogs, and um, they were wild, like absolutely wild. So I go outside. I'm trying to like, you know, squeeze myself out the door so they don't kill the UPS driver. And I don't even have a shirt on. Like I just woke up. I'm half asleep. And I close the door behind me, and the dog jumps up and somehow latches the deadbolt on the door. And I'm standing outside with like shorts on, no shoes, no shirt, no phone. And I had to sit out there for two and a half hours waiting for Allison to get home from work to let me into the house. Y'all, I was thinking, I was, how am I going to murder these dogs? Is the only thing that came over my mind for the next two hours. You know, the reason why I say that is because metaphorically speaking, uh, I feel like oftentimes we lock ourselves out of a lot of things. Maybe, maybe you feel like you're getting locked out of what I would say is this proverbial church thing. For a lot of us, if we're not careful, what we'll end up doing, and I want to show you this today, is we lock ourselves out of the power and the presence of God because we trade in uh, strategy and growth and power, we trade in God's power for the next strategy and growth session. Maybe for you, you feel like, honestly, you just don't fit in. Like you, you don't fit into the culture, you don't feel, fit into the church, and you feel like oftentimes you show up to this place and you're getting locked out of what should be the church because you live in this present reality where you walk in and nobody seems to look or act like you. 
Did, did you know, did you know that theologically speaking, you can have 100% access to the presence and power of God and yet lock yourself out from actually experiencing it? Like, it's not a contradiction to say this, that you can have access to all the power of God and yet you never access the power of God. Tim, Tim Keller, he tells this story about when he was in his first church in Pennsylvania, he said he would do these house visits and there was this one older lady that her house was dilapidated, it was a mess and it was falling apart. He said it got so bad that she would get deathly ill every single winter because the walls were so thin that, that it couldn't keep the heat in. He said one day she ended up having the house condemned and she had to leave and he was like, I felt awful for her. She didn't have any of the resources necessary to take care of her house. Then he said one of the church members came up and he said, you realize that she's filthy rich, right? And he was so confused by that. He walked up to her and he says, what are you doing? Like, you have the resources in order to take care of this. Why aren't you using them? Her response was, well, you never know what's going to happen in the future, so I don't want to spend the resources on this whenever it could be catastrophic later. Y'all, she had access to all the money necessary to fix the house, and she wasn't using it. In the same way, in the Christian life, I feel like many of us are in danger of being spiritually bankrupt, not because we don't have access to all the spiritual power in the presence of God, but we lock ourselves out of what's available to us by never accessing it. Today, I want to show you, today I want to show you that there is power in the church and there's power in God's presence in your life if you will position yourself in such a way to receive it. There are practical things that we can do in order to make God's presence known in this church and in the world. So here's the big idea for today. If we will lean into a few simple things that God has called the church to do, we would see an awakening both in our spiritual lives and in the church. But if we don't, we'll continue to lock ourselves out to the most incredible resource in the entire world. So Acts chapter 6, here's how it begins in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, we're jumping into the middle of a story, so let me rewind the script and fill in the blanks for you and set the table so you know what's going on. If you didn't know this, the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts is one book written by the same author. Actually, in Greek, it's, it, they don't have two separate books. It's one book. And what you're seeing is in the book of Luke, Jesus has just risen from the dead. The book of Acts starts, Acts chapter 1. The disciples, they go back to Jerusalem for 40 days until the ascension where Jesus raises and goes into heaven. At that point, Acts chapter 1, it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and Jesus tells them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. By the way, if you never knew this, we are the ends of the earth. So if you get Israel in the center, actually the gospel has gone out to the ends of the earth. And now it's starting to go back. It's really beautiful. Acts chapter 2 happens. Then, and the, the, uh, the disciples, they begin to speak the gospel in all these different languages of the people who have come to Jerusalem. I need you to get this because it's super important. God sent the nations to Jerusalem for the Passover, and then he spoke the gospel in their ethnic languages, and the gospel goes forward throughout the entire world. It was so miraculous that people couldn't even wrap their minds around it. They came up to Peter, and they're like, what is going on? They even accused them of being drunk. Now, what I love is Peter's response. He's like, brothers, 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 they're not drunk. 
It's only noon. <laughs> you go back and read it, Acts chapter 2. He's, he's like, if it was 5 p.m., totally get what you're saying. But it's 12 o'clock. They're not. So the gospel, it begins to go forward through these ordinary people. Now watch this. The greatest church planting movement in the history of the world did not happen by the apostles. You got to understand this. They came to Jerusalem. They were filled with the spirit of God and they went back to their hometowns because the church is an army, not an audience. The way that the church is supposed to function is by facilitating this movement. And what you need to understand is this, is that the staff was never meant to be the movement. It was supposed to be ordinary people filled with an extraordinary spirit that goes back to the world with the gospel to their spheres of life. It's interesting to me, if you actually go read the book of Acts, Paul, the greatest missionary to ever live, every time he goes to these new cities, it says that he's met by the brothers. Who are the brothers? They're the believers from Acts chapter 2 who heard the gospel, took it back to their cities, and started church planting movements. Y'all, that means, that means that you have a place in God's mission. You, you get that, right? That means that God wants to use the church, meaning all of us, to take this thing and spread it throughout the world. And, and, and what you'll see is that thousands upon thousands of people, if you go from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 6, thousands upon thousands of people came to faith, and it wasn't because they hired a bunch of Christians to do it. It's because the Spirit of God worked through them. Peter, in Acts chapter 5, Peter, this same guy who was scared to death by a middle school girl and ran away from Jesus, is standing before the council, standing before the council that killed Jesus, and he's preaching the gospel, and they beat him, and they tell him to stop, and listen to what he says. He goes, I must obey God, not man, so you guys do whatever you want to do. This is the same Peter, and it says that he went away rejoicing because he was counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus. That's the backdrop going into Acts chapter 6. Now read it again, okay? Now in these days, that's those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, thousands of them were coming into faith, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Take note of this. Growing pains always hurt. Growing pains always hurt. See, when the church started growing, it started growing with all different kinds of people. And those people had wildly different beliefs about how the world should function. They, they, tend to, they tend to have different points of view on different things. Now, let me, let me say this. Mature, growing, healthy churches should have people on the maturation spectrum. Here's what I'm saying. You should have people in a healthy church who are wildly mature in their discipleship process. And you should have people who are wildly immature in their discipleship process. That's the only way that you can have a healthy church. Now, let me say this. When those two people come together, it's messy, okay? It's messy because the people who are wildly mature in their discipleship tend to forget what it was like to be those people that are wildly immature. What we need to understand is that God calls us to do this thing together, which means it's going to take a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds that see the world differently coming together in this thing called church. These two groups, they were Jewish background believers, okay, the, the, and they couldn't have been any more different. You think about it like this, these Hellenists, Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews, they came from a Greek-speaking Mediterranean background, okay? If it was 2023, you would think of them as more like the mainstream progressives. They listened to Bethel music, they drank beer, and they watched church online, all right? And then you had the Hebrews, 
The Hebrews were like the varsity level religious type. Like they believed in the regulative principle. If you don't know what that is, praise God. What that basically is, though, is they, the regulative principle says that you, the church always met on Sunday, so you should. So these guys would have been the guys that like went on Twitter and mocked every church in the world that didn't meet on Christmas morning because it was a Sunday this year. And they only listened to hymns because hymns are superior. Even though we didn't know the lyrics, we just know that they're better. That's these people. I know, now that I've offended all of you, let me just say this. There were major issues. You, you had Hebrews that came from a Palestinian background. And you had the Hellenists that came from a Greek background. They wouldn't even worship together. They had their own temples. And the gospel had begun to transform their lives in such a way that they came together. Okay? Here's the deal. You know what happened? They started complaining. You know why? You know why? Because when churches come together, it's messy. Here's what Satan wants you to believe. That the greatest enemy of the church is culture. Can I tell you something? The greatest enemy of the church is the church. It's when we fight with one another. Listen, more churches have been killed by infighting than anything else. When people come together, it creates messiness. And that's what's going on here. If, 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 we, if we understood this, what we would understand is this. Listen, the church is supposed to be a place, a safe haven from people from every single background that can come together and find a commonality in something greater than themselves, which is Jesus. You see, culture, culture is over-promised and under-delivered on this thing called unity. They've told you that, that they can make it work, that people from every culture can come together, but the reality is, is it's just not happening. And the church is supposed to point to the world to say it can happen and it's supposed to happen here. If the last 15 years has taught us anything is that there's still huge cultural and racial divides in this world. And listen, racism is not just a Southern issue. It's not just an American issue. It is a human issue and it's happening everywhere. I lived in Chicago and I'm just going to tell you the way that we dealt with racist issues is that the white people lived on one side of town, the black people lived on the other side of town. They never dealt with one another. That's not the way that God's church is supposed to be. The gospel is supposed to be the bridge that's powerful enough to unite people from different backgrounds. But listen to me, it's not easy. And Acts chapter 6 is going to show you that it is not easy. As soon as the church started reaching people from different backgrounds, they started fighting with one another. The Hellenists, right? The Hellenists, these Greek-speaking widows... They probably migrated over to Jerusalem to live out their last days so the church could take care of them because that's what God's church was supposed to do. And yet, the church neglected their benevolence and they marginalized the marginalized group. Verse 2, look what happens. In the 12, that's the 12 apostles, summoned the full number of disciples. I love that. If you underline words in your Bible, the full number. Do you know what that means? That means that every single ethnic group was represented in this conversation. It wasn't like they were passing down something to the marginalized group. No, they invited everybody to the table for equal representation. So they brought them together and listen what they said. The disciples said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Here's the next thing. Healthy churches unlock the power of God when, when they operate within their calling. 
I want you to notice this. The apostles said that it's not right, or a better translation would be, it's not appropriate for us to give up the preaching of the word and prayer to do this. Now, it's not that they didn't serve, but watch this. When the leadership does everything, you stifle the growth of building up leaders within the church. So they understood, we have a role, we have a calling, and so do you. And if you put everything on us, then there's going to be a cog in the system. We need to be doing this together. See, the, the, the apostles understood, though, that their calling, their primary calling, was to preach the word and to pray. It didn't mean that they didn't serve, but it meant that their functional time needed to be given primarily to this, and the only way to do that would be to raise up leaders from within to carry out the mission of the church together. So let's talk, let's talk a bit about calling. I want to be practical today. Jim Collins, Jim Collins said this about calling. He gave it to me a helpful grid. He says, Here, here's, what, here's how you should serve. He says, first, you should serve with your heart. Think your passion. You know, when you're passionate about something, like God does amazing things. Now, let me say this, and I'll say this in a little bit. You should just be passionate about what God's passionate about. So serve with your passions. And then he says, serve with your hands. Think your skills. And then, listen to this. He says, serve where there is a need. Serve where there is a need. Acts chapter 6, there was a need. The need was to take care of the widows. I'm sure that there were people that thought, man, that's, that's my calling. I'm sure there were other people who were like, you know what? I'm just called to what God has called me to do. So whatever that is. Did you know, statistically speaking, there's a group called the Barna Group. And they do all these church stats. And they, they said that the average person will make a decision on whether or not they'll come back to a church 70% of the time within the first 10 minutes of being there. You know what that tells me? They're not making a decision based on me. They're making a decision based on you. Listen, when they walk into that door, they're making a decision, man, is there a community of people that want to be here? Are my kids safe whenever I check them in? Is there a smiling face? Did anybody engage with me? Do you know how many stories I've been told by people, and this is not, not hyperbolic, that has told me, I was never coming back to church. Every time I went, I showed up, nobody ever talked to me. And I told God that this is the last time I'm going. Last time I'm going. And if nobody talks to me, I'm never coming back. Then they came and their experience was completely altered because one of you came to them and just said hi. Talking to another friend who, uh, him and his wife were going to get divorced because on Saturday, she came home early from a work trip. You can fill in the gaps of what happened next. She said they'd never gone to church before. She said, you know what? If you want any chance of this marriage lasting, we're going. They showed up the next day and they both got saved. And now, 20 years later, he's a pastor sharing the gospel with people because somebody walked up to him and said hi and brought him into a church. Now, don't underestimate the power that happens when we live within this calling of serving one another. See, we serve one another because love is the glue that binds people to the gospel. The gospel changes their hearts, but you have an important place in this story. And the only way that this was possible is when they operated within their giftings. The apostles were called to prayer in the word. Now, in Greek, I know most of us don't know Greek, but in Greek, there's an indefinite, or there's a definite article in front of prayer and the word. It should say, if you're reading it, we just don't read it this way in English, they gave themselves to the prayer and the word. They were both the ministries of the church. See, it wasn't like prayer was a means to an end so somebody could come up and speak. It was the ministry. They understood that without God, nothing happened. 
They needed God's glory and they needed his power in their lives and they needed to devote themselves to these two things. It was like the wings that gave flight to the presence of God in the church. So they devoted themselves to this. And as they gave themselves to teaching the scriptures, they said, let's do this together. Because here's the reality. People don't need a pep talk for Jesus. They need Jesus. They, we need the word of God. Right? We, need, we need people who are devoting themselves to praying and giving God's word continually. And the apostles understood that the way that they would do that is to empower other people to lead out in other areas of the church. Now notice, those people, it says that they had good reputation. See that? The church set them apart because they already had a good reputation. But watch, the church set them apart. I want to fill in some gaps here for you. That means that they were a part of a community. Let me say it like this. One of the most dangerous things that I see is when people volunteer me what they've already decided to do and they never asked anybody around them if they thought it was a good idea. It happens all the time. Hey, who'd you talk to about that? Well, nobody. Or my, my friend in California. How about the people around here that you're in community with in your small group? Did you ever bring this? No, didn't. You know, the, the waters get muddy whenever we think that we can be called to something without it ever being affirmed by the church. That's what God's called us to do. And when I say affirmed by the church, that's not by me. Okay, I'm not the church. We are the church. Living in community together. So notice that these seven men were people of good repute, which means that they were known and they were full of the spirit and wisdom. I'm telling you, if you will put your head down, if you'll give yourself to this thing called the church, if you'll love one another and serve well, you will get noticed. They did not have to jockey for positions. They just served. And what ended up happening as they gave themselves to this, God set them apart to do some pretty amazing things. So again, I want to be practical. Let me give you a paradigm that I've given you in the past. And it will help you with that. But before I do this, let me say this really clear, because I'm going to talk about calling. God has called some of us to some specific areas. I get that. He's called all of us to serve. Okay? That, that's not up for dispute. God's word, Christians, believers, if you read the word, is to serve one another. So I want to tell you, here's, here's a paradigm, five things that you should think through as you think about your calling. They're real practical. Number one, I call it affinity. Affinity. Like, what do you enjoy doing? Do you enjoy speaking? Jerry Seinfeld said um, that public speaking is the most terrifying thing in the world for most people. So if you're at a funeral, they'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. I enjoy speaking. I know you might not. Maybe I should speak. You know, there's an affinity there, right? Now, you've got to couple your affinity with your ability, Okay. This is where community matters so much because like I feel like I'm called to go play in the NFL. Have you seen me run lately? Right? Like a baby giraffe. My legs are moving, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm probably not called to play in the NFL. There was one time whenever um, I forgot to turn my mic off and they were singing on the stage um, and they stopped singing, but I didn't. And the community affirmed very quickly that I got the voice of a fallen angel. Right? Like, you are not called to lead worship. You hear what I'm saying? Sometimes we need that. So affinity and ability. What do you feel like you should do? What are you good at doing? Now, here's where community matters, which is number three, community. Community helps you to understand, hey, bro, like, I know you think you should be singing, but let me, let me just tell you, the Lord has not called you to do that. Or the opposite can happen. It's really, really beautiful when it does. 
when they call out the good that they see in you. Man, you are really good with kids. And when you serve back there, my kids come alive. You should consider serving in kids. You know, some of you don't know what you're good at. Can I just tell you, just go do something. The community will help affirm that, and so will God. So affinity, ability, community. Here's the last one. This one often gets left out, responsibility. God has given you some God-given responsibilities that should not be contradicted by the other things, okay? Like, you are called, if you're married, to your family. So maybe God has not called you to go do homeless ministry in California while your family lives in Milton. You get what I'm saying? Let me just be real clear. God has not called you to move in with your girlfriend. He has not called you to leave your spouse. And he has not called you to gossip pray about people, which might be the biggest one that I see all the time. You know, oh, I saw old Sally in the she was at Publix with another man. We need to pray for her. That other man was probably a brother, but you know, we're going to, or here's, here's my favorite one. I love this one. Man, Chris, I've been praying for you, bro. I've been praying that the Lord would bless you with another church so much. Don't pray like that. We have, a, we have a God-given responsibility to certain things, and God's word doesn't contradict that. So your callings have to fall in line with what God has already made explicitly clear in the word. Where it's not explicitly clear, the community will help you. So affinity, what do I like? Ability, what am I good at? Community, what is the people that God has entrusted me to be a part of, affirmed in me, and responsibility, does this thing contradict the other God-given responsibilities that God has given me? Does that make sense? All right, verse five. And what they said... Please the whole gathering. I love that. There's unity there. And they chose Stephen, a man of full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus, and a bunch of names, Timon and Pumbaa, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. Do you, know any, you notice anything about those names? Parmenius? It's a Greek name. They're all Greek names. They're the minority group in the church that the church has set aside to lead out the church. Y'all love this. It takes a legitimate amount of humility on the Hebrew background believers to step aside and allow this minority group to lead. Watch this. When the church is growing and the power of God is being poured out, the church humbles itself to lift up everyone. <laughs> this is absolutely amazing because the world would tell you not to do that. You, you, you know, this is the American dream in our world is to build your kingdom at the expense of everybody else. My kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, except for God's kingdom says, no, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. If you want to see God's kingdom grow, if you want to see the power of the church explode, it's demonstrated whenever you look at people and you don't look at them based on their abilities, their skin color, or their accomplishments. You say that God has qualified you based on your character more than anything. And these minority Christians were men of good repute who were full of the Spirit, and the church was humble enough to say, those men need to lead the thing, even if they're the minority of the church. Y'all, God's kingdom, God's kingdom is about expanding with people from different ethnic backgrounds because Jesus' vision from the church, if you remember in Revelation chapter 7, is that people from every tribe, 
tongue, and nation would stand around the throne room of God, worshiping him, accomplishing what this world has overpromised and cannot deliver on. See, as the world continues to divide, what they need to see is they need to see a church united. They need to see that the church is a safe space for people of different backgrounds. Watch this. They need to see a church that's about unity, not uniformity. You, you hear me? There's something different there. Uniformity is not about sameness. Uniformity is about oneness. Write that down. You know, unity is about getting after oneness, not sameness. Okay? God is after uniformity. Our God's after unity, not uniformity. Dr. Tony Evans, I love the way he says it. He says, peace does not mean that you won't have problems. Peace means the problems won't have you. Y'all, the church have problems. It's always messy. But they were willing to humble themselves, and they were willing to have a unity that was beyond their ego. And because they did that, the church expanded even more. By the way, if you keep reading Acts chapter 6 and 7, Stephen, the guy that's listed first, he gives one of the most important sermons in the entire Bible, and it's the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. Do you know why that's important? Because Stephen had major skills. He's the guy that should have been on the platform preaching, but Stephen recognized that the greatest need in the church was for him to go serve the widows instead. He wasn't jockeying for a position, a power. He was like, man, whatever you need, I'll go do it. He, you know, I tell you that because sometimes, sometimes I watch a lot of us that just aren't willing to jump in and do the hard stuff because we think that it's beneath us. I mean, just, I'm pretty sure that doing the widow's ministry at the church was beneath Stephen's abilities. I'm pretty sure that taking off your outer garment, getting down on your knees, and washing the feet of your enemy was beneath Jesus' abilities too. But their serving changed the world. The way that the early church grew and expanded was by serving one another. What if the thing that's holding us back from experiencing an awakening of the presence of God in the church is our ego? Like, like it's just really hard because we want to have the mic or we want to be, uh, have a seat at the table. We want to be the people who want to make the decisions. But what if God's just like, hey, why don't you just show up on Sundays? Why don't you just do something, hold a door, and serve the people around you? And if, listen, if you're in the majority culture, which 99% of us are in here, let me just ask you the question. Would you be willing to let the minority culture lead? And I know, I know the church answers, yes. But all statistics show that that's not true. All statistics show that what we really want is a multicolored church with a singular culture, not a multicultural church. But I'm just telling you, God's glory shines through when people from different cultures come together, and it's very uncomfortable, but it's beautiful because you get to see the multidimensional, gorgeous beauty of God in this world through one another. And the world needs to see it. See, that's going to require all of us to be a little uncomfortable. I'm telling you, one of the defining marks of the church, of God's people, throughout the entire Bible, is how they treat the poor and the marginalized. It's all over the Old Testament, by the way. When he told the nation of Israel, don't glean the edges of your field, but leave them for those people who don't deserve it. They didn't do anything. They didn't work your fields. And he tells, hey, why don't you forgive their debts? Yo, we live in a society that will tell you the opposite. They'll tell you if you do stuff like that, you're liberal, or you're woke or whatever. But that's, I'm just telling you, God's like, why don't we just lift up the marginalized and care for those around us? God's people are supposed to be different. We're supposed to be people who care for the orphans and the widows, the homeless and the hurting, the elderly, which might actually in Western society be the most forgotten group of people in the entire American ecosystem. 
We just put them in a home. What if God's people is like, what if we serve them? Can I just tell you, if you know me, I've, said, I've shared this many times. My, my mother is addicted to meth still to this day. And if it wasn't for this small little Baptist church, Dover Baptist Church in Plant City, Florida, coming to my house and giving us Christmas gifts and not judging my mom and saying, like, you should be different or this or that, but just simply loving us, I don't know if I'd be here today. And those old, sweet, southern people don't even have a clue this side of eternity, the impact that they've made on my life by simply showing up and serving and not, not having to have all these presuppositions and prerequisites. What if that's what God's people did all the time? I'm telling you, be the most powerful ethic in the entire world. Write, write it down. The defining ethic of Christ followers is how they care for people who society says doesn't deserve it because we are people who know that we didn't deserve God's grace. That's how you do it. You have to posture yourself in such a way that says, I didn't deserve it either. See, if you want to see the power of God unleashed in the church, it's going to happen when we realize that there are no hierarchies in church. There's just different roles. Like I get up and I'm the lead pastor here. My job is no better than Clayton's job who leads our discipleship ministries. It's, no, it's just different. It's no, it's no better than the people in the production team or the connections team or if you lead a small group or if you serve in city kids, which I understand that it is challenging to serve back there, but I'm telling you, my kids know more about Jesus because the people who sacrificially go back there and teach them the scriptures. It is a beautiful calling. But let me just be clear. All of us are called to serve somewhere. All of us are. We just have to decide what we're going to do. Now watch what happens when we begin to serve. Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Here's how God's people unlocked the door of God's presence. You ready? Humility, calling, and justice. That's what you see throughout here. So let me, let me wrap this up real quickly by giving you three points. Letter A, the word of God grows. Letter B, disciples are multiplied. Letter C, the church reaches people. All right, letter A, the word of God grows. Notice that I didn't say that the church grows. That's really important. Look at it. The word of God continued to increase. Their hunger for God's word grew as they served one another, as they devoted themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Y'all, this stuff of unity is not natural. Okay, something in them started craving this thing that made them come together, and it was the word of God through the gospel. When you understand that Jesus is the one who did everything necessary to save you, that he lived your perfect life and died your death, what you end up doing is you end up not thinking of yourself as better than anybody. You end up living in gratitude, and you serve one another, and it's a posture of humility. And then you begin to see that there's beauty in people that are different than you. You start to learn that the world is way more complex than multidimensional than you first thought. And you start to see God's beauty come out of that. It's amazing circular thing that happens. God's word humbles you and then it hungers you. And then you want more of it. And then you serve. And as you serve and as you want more of it, as, as they did this because they allowed the disciples to be set aside for preaching in the ministry of prayer, and they, the leadership began to permeate throughout, what they ended up doing is becoming more hungry for God's word. And letter B, disciples were increased. 
It was multiply. Oh, this is so good. Watch this. When we don't allow people to function within their giftings and their callings, we create a cog in the wheel that, that produces professional Christians that do all the work and none, we become spectators instead of the church. Listen, God's word's not limited to one person. You have the spirit of the living God inside of you and he wants to equip you to be a change agent in the world. And as you do that, as you hunger for his word, as you live in his word, discipleship is multiplied and people, uh, people's lives are changed. Like, like Jesus said in Acts chapter, or John chapter 20, as the father has sent me, so I'm sending you. See, what if the thing that is holding the church back is this model that we've created of come and see instead of go and tell? Like, hey, I'm going to bring my friends to hear the professional. What if God's like, hey, that's not what we need, right? What we need is for you to understand that he's called and equipped you with every good gift that you need. See, I believe that God's game plan to change the world is the spirit of God indwelling inside of all of us as we hunger for the word of God and then he multiplies disciples who go and change the world. Stop believing the lie that I'm a professional Christian that gets paid and you're just good for nothing. It's a lie. It is a lie that has stifled the church. God has equipped you with every good gift necessary. He has empowered you with every resource you need to change the world. You just have to unlock that door and allow God's presence to come into you and then go out and tell the world. Watch what will happen. Let her see. The church reaches people. Did you notice it says a great number of the priests became obedient to faith? Do you know who those priests were? They were the professional religious Christians trying to kill Christianity. Let me say that differently. They're the professional religious people, I wouldn't say Christians, people trying to kill Christianity. They were the people that stopped Jesus. At least they thought they did. Do you know what their role was historically in the Old Testament? The priest's role was to take care of the orphans and the widows. They neglected their role. They gave it up to be, you know, the religious police. And then they watched as all these people filled with the Spirit of God started serving one another. Do you know what happened? They started coming to faith. The antagonistic people of the world started coming to faith. Listen to me. There's a good lesson here. Most people, most people who are antagonistic toward the church are not antagonistic towards Jesus. They're antagonistic towards us. They're not mad at Gandhi with the worst quotes ever. I love your Jesus. I just don't love your people. Y'all, when the church sacrificially loves one another, people's hearts towards Jesus changes. And the gospel message is sufficient to change the world, even the most antagonistic people in the world. See, sometimes I think we take for granted how powerful our unity in the gospel is, our love for God's word and serving one another can be for the people around us. Francis Schaeffer the love, is, love on display is the church's most powerful apologetic. When the world that is falling apart sees that there is something greater in this world than what the world has to offer, and they see it as we love one another well, and I just believe that God will wreck people's lives with the gospel. Like when dads, dads, when you decide that you're going to be a dad in your home and you're not going to live for the American dream, but you're going to love your wife and your kids and, and, and you're going to choose to forfeit some of the things that this world tells you you should have because you know that you only have a short window to be present in your kid's life. Oh, you're going to change this world. 
You know, just the other day, I got an email from my father-in-law who does not go to church at all. Um, he wrote me an email and he says, hey, thank you for how you love my grandkids and the way that you live your life and the way that you love your family. And then he sends me this article about how culture's all jacked up. And, um, and you know, he says, and listen, we don't, we don't have the monetary stuff that 99% of people in our city has, but we have something so much greater. We have a love for Jesus and a love for one another that decided that we're going to stick together no matter what, and people notice those things. Can I just tell you this? I know I'm out of time, but whatever. Um, you know, they say divorce rates among Christians and non-Christians are about the same. You actually dig into that a little deeper. Christians who attend church regularly, the divorce rates are like 6 to 7%. 6 to 7%. Where the world is like 67%. Okay? If you actually take this Christianity thing seriously, God will do good things in your life. Allison brought a meal to a friend. And um, she said, nobody's ever brought me a meal before. And it, it wrecked her. You know, when she was in the hospital last year, for three months, I didn't make a meal at all. Like, like I had so much food. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this stuff. I'm going to, like, throw it away. And Amy Churchill brought, like, six meals a day. I'm like, I don't know what to do. Imagine if your neighbors never had another need ever again because they had you. The impact that that would make. Imagine. is as I'm drowning in food, your neighbor who's isolated doesn't know anybody knew that they had you. The impact that you would make. I think we got this whole thing backward. It's not come and see, it's go and tell. Y'all, when the church decides to lay aside its differences, to love its enemies like Jesus had commanded us to do, I think that we will see people's lives change and it will change in the best of way. Do you realize that the way the church grew the fastest in the Roman Empire as they're being persecuted is that they went back in to the people who had the plague and they served them even at the expense of their own lives. And the entire world noticed and people came to faith. Here's the play. When we choose to elevate the marginalized, when we commit to serve one another with our God-given gifts and when we love the world, that's the formula to unleash the power of God in the world. I'm telling you, telling you, it will change this world. Jesus said that he died for his church to make her beautiful and our job is to go make it beautiful too. When we love because he first loved us, we put the gospel on display. And the gospel is that Jesus has done everything necessary to save us, everything, which means that we should be the most humble, kind people on the planet because we are people that understand grace more than anyone. Why not us? City Church, why not this be the year that we posture ourselves differently so that we're not saying, I need to receive, but I want to give? Watch this. And as you give, God blesses you so much more than you would ever know because it's in the giving that God fills you up with his presence. It, it's, it's so practical and yet so beautiful. So here's how I want to end. I want to end, there's going to be two tables, and I'll give you direction in just a second, where Jim's going to be over there and Clayton's going to be over there, and I want your next step to be, I want you to sign up to serve somewhere. Now, what are you going to do? How are you going to do it? I don't know. We'll figure out all the logistics. I just want you to be open-handed. I want you to say, God, this is the year that as the church goes forth, I'm going to be all in with whatever you're calling me to do. And then let's get after it together. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your glory and your grace. God, I pray that you would help us to live in light of what you've called us to do. Understanding, Lord Jesus, that you are kind, that you first loved us, 
that you first served us, that you first gave your blood as a ransom for many. Lord, thank you that you are who you said that you are. Thank you that you've called us. Lord, we're not just bystanders in this thing called Christianity. We are, we are in the main role of building your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Would you help us to do that? Would you help us to serve you and love you well? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.